Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at chumbacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. I'm one of your regular hosts, Greg Bosco, and with me as always is Mr. Derek. Say hello, buddy. Hey, Greg. How you doing? This is this is episode 61, right? Yeah, because we had 60 was last week. Yeah. All right. Our big double feature. <laughs> our big, yeah. I think that was our longest episode. Uh, between you and me, yeah, some of the movie reviews we did while you were away went a little on the long side, but... <laughs> Well, it's okay to talk about Star Trek movies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, let's let's face it. There's so many reviews out there that are like 90 minute long reviews, anyways. What's so it's all good. I figure, you know, the, the my review should be as long as the film, at least, right? <laughs> I, I think it's an important standard to hold ourselves accountable for. Is it just you know that way we get make we get all the quality in there that we can? Right. That's exact. That's what we were doing. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> but uh, this week we're talking about the sounds. Of Thunder, the latest disco episode. Um, a very kind of a unusual episode. Not bad. I mean, I actually, I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to kind of unpack in this one. So I'm thinking maybe we should just start with our spoiler warning and dive in. What do you think? Yeah, because this is again, this is another, and this season's kind of following that trend where they're not wasting a lot of time. Like there's no, there's not a really a lot of dead space on each episode. It's, they kind of jump right into the plot mm-hmm. and pick up right where last week left off. And I think you kind of said it a, a few weeks ago. There's only so much you can do when you have a 13 to 15 episode season. Yeah. And I think, I think it's 14 this season. And so there's a lot that they need to get through, obviously, uh, since these episodes have certainly not like dilly dallied or anything like that. Um, and, you know, we haven't even met Spock yet, so. <laughs> yeah, we haven't really met Spock. And, you know, again, the spoiler warning, this episode probably had a little bit more info on the Red Angel kind of stuff mm-hmm. than we've had all season. But again, we still don't really have, uh, huh, we still don't have any any idea who it is. And I kind of like, I kind of, I'm kind of happy that they're building up the mystery. And, I mean, everybody's kind of guessing, is it Iconian, is it this, is it that? I mean, mysteries are fun. As long as they're done right, and I still think they're—I still think they're kind of doing this one well. There are so many theories though about this Red Angel, and I—I'm one of the people in the camp that thinks it'd be cool if it was an Iconian. It doesn't have to be by any means, but these people who are like, "Well, it's Spock from the future," or it's the AI of Discovery that we saw in the short treks. Um, those tie-ins are just a little too specific for me, and I while I hate ever calling anything fictional contrived because. If it's fictional, it, it is contrived. Um, yeah, it's, you made, it's made up. Right? Yeah. Uh, I, I just feel like if you get too specific with your connections and everything everything is connected all the time, it just seems a little too convenient, maybe, is a better way to say it. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And, you know, if you're going to use a pre-existing race, pick one that everybody everybody's heard of, but we still don't have a whole lot of info on, because mm-hmm. then you can still kind of goof around without really messing up with canon and the iconians yeah they're in star trek online and there's been some books but a lot of memory beta like a lot of beta canon right not a whole lot of alpha canon on the iconians except for you know the uh 
<laughs> the interaction that the Enterprise had with it when the Yamato was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows much about them. Yeah, I mean, there's been some some wishing, I think, that people uh, want to see some of that tie into the new Picard series, which would be cool. Uh, but I think you're right. This is an opportunity for Discovery to showcase part of the universe that we've mostly heard of, but don't really know anything about. Um, well, yeah, let's let's be honest. Like a future Spock, we've already kind of had that with 2009. Yeah. So don't do that again. It's, <laughs> just let let that be the movie and then make something new for Discovery. I mean, like, at a minimum, if you want this to be a time-traveling character, at least make it be somebody who hasn't already done it. Yeah, I mean, Spock's <laughs> already done it, like, five times now. I mean, let give it to, you know, give it to, yeah, it's LaForge or something. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it obviously won't be, no. but make it unique, make it make it special, make it have a reason for doing what it's doing versus instead of some, like, Q thing where it's messing with all these species just because it wants to have fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, we do get a better look at the Red Angel in this episode. So, um, and Saru kind of gives us the exposition for it, and that's it appears to be humanoid in some type of mechanical or robotic style suit. Um, so, it could be really any number of species we already know, let alone a new one. Doesn't really pigeonhole it into anything other than, you know, species eight four seven two, I guess, unless they're you know, in their human suits. And they would need a reason for interfering and helping all these species out when, when, you know, it's, it's almost like a connection of some kind to the, to the, to Star Trek force probe, or it's for some reason finding these species that it knows are important in the future, which also kind of plays into the whole, uh, the time the, the, the storyline they did in, um, like how in enterprise, with uh, what's his face, the aliens that attacked Earth because they thought humans in the future were going to basically be their doom. If this was right. the opposite, this is some species that's like, oh, Kelpians are important and humans are important and Vulcans are important because in 150 years they're going to stop the Dominion or something. <laughs> they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of that's kind of neat. Yeah, I I hesitate on some of that because like you know the temporal Cold War and the Zindi arc. Um, while some of that was really cool, it's still Enterprise material, which. Um, it's still kind of controversial in the Trek community. I really like Enterprise, but I know a lot of people don't. Well, it's, it's unfortunate because everybody judged it on the first season when it was season three and four. It was really, that really kind of picked up the quality of, of work. And yeah, you're right. It's just, but, and again, everybody who's listening, you're probably noticing we're not talking a lot about the episode yet. We're kind of talking about everything around it. It's because at least in my opinion, this was another episode where a lot of stuff happens that's big but there's not a lot of individual storylines. It's basically another entire Saru episode with his sister, which is great because I love Saru, but we're not talking them solving a lot of puzzles or this out of the other, or doing a lot of exploring. It's very minimal Mm -hmm. and very, uh, uh, very reacting to what's going on around them before it's kind of taking control at the end. Right. And, you know, to your point about Saru, this is uh, also the first episode that ties directly into a Short Treks episode, um, which is The Brightest Star, which was the Saru episode of Short Treks. So if you hadn't seen that, um, I don't think you would have been lost necessarily, but it definitely provided a lot of really helpful background for when Saru gets to meet his sister again. Yeah, I mean, you have that and you kind of have already some lore about the home world and the species and the uh like the the double evolution which is always kind of a neat story because lots of lots of tv shows have kind of done that where there's like multiple species evolving in the same planet and it almost i mean hell look at look at earth history i mean neanderthals and homo sapiens were basically right alongside each other mm-hmm. and it's kind of a fun play on history of what would have what would the world be like if neanderthals still existed and this is you know we've got the baul who are very technologically advanced, apparently, you know, warp drive 20 years in the past and apparently already pre- feel pretty confident on taking on Discovery. Uh, <laughs> Got to give them kudos for that. Yeah, part of me wonders how much of that's just overcompensating, right? Because when you finally get to learn about the Ba'ul, they're clearly physically frail, right? They uh, they have to live in neither the water or whatever that liquid was on the ship. And they... Um, 
are thin kind of uh, lanky kind of creatures so maybe they just kind of overcompensated with their technology since they knew physically they couldn't keep up with even the kelpians let alone the rest of the galaxy well it's kind of interesting because the kelpians are also pretty thin but they got obviously they have a significant amount of strength to them Mm -hmm. and we kind of saw that in season one when you know at one point saru threw michael burnham like she was just a paper bag and again we're seeing it more and more and you know when you legitimately think he's gonna deck captain pike in this episode which was a good stand that was a pretty fun standoff yeah um so of course this episode continues uh where we left saru where he doesn't have his fear gangling anymore uh and we don't really know what's going to happen to him he doesn't know what's going to happen to him and he's clearly a different person already. He is more confident in himself. He is more direct and open about what he wants. And he's maybe a little more aggressive about uh, getting his way as well. Um, that scene in particular between him and Pike on the bridge was intense. I, I definitely did not see that coming from that between those two characters. And it was just a really well done moment. Yeah. And for those of you that are, you know, our loyal fans out there, the, the episode really kicks in because they pick up, they discover another signal right out um, on, uh, look, the, the, what's the home planet name? Because I keep wanting to say Kandahar, but that's not, that's in Afghanistan. <laughs> um, oh, Saru's Sur- planet? Um, Sur- yeah, I keep messing up the name. Ka- Ka- Kaminar. Yeah, Kaminar. Uh, <clears throat> they pick up another signal, of the, like the, the red signal in Kaminar, and, you know, even when they're pulling up the location and they, they recognize where it is, and Saru's like, that's that's my home planet, that's my home world. And I mean, that's the, the episode literally kind of starts off with that and they're immediately onto the races of going to the home world. And, you know, and I, you know, I, it's another issue I kind of have with the season where Pike is, Pike's kind of like a pseudo captain almost because he does listen to the people around him a lot, but he's doesn't really make a lot of final decisions. And maybe that's just captain style. I was actually surprised when he was so hesitant to send Saru down because it is Saru's home world. I mean, it's, it's. But he does also write because Saru's going through all these changes. But I was happy that Michael stood up for him. And he was like, and even he, she brought up, she's like, look, he knows the people, he knows the culture, he knows the planet, he knows where to take me. And by the way, there's these horrific bowel creatures that nobody understands. And I don't want to get eaten by the bowel or something. Yeah, I, th- I think Pike was a little justified simply because Saru had, was already showing that his personality was different whether it was the stress of the situation or his physical changes, we don't know yet. And he certainly didn't know yet. And it could have been a combination of the two. So that could have created a very, and I guess did create a very volatile situation. And Burnham really put herself out there by stepping in for, for Saru and, and supporting him when she doesn't know how stable he is either. No. And it, it kind of is following the, the last episode where, the bond between the two of them is just increasing every single episode and every part of the story. And I think she even realized, you know, this is important to him. If I can help him, I need to, because he's my friend. And Saru's been kind of helping her and teaching her. And then she's been learning from him just as much, mm-hmm. but it was, you know, and the, the whole losing the, you know, the, the ganglia thing, it's, it's kind of funny if you think about it, it'd be like if human, if a human just spontaneously stopped requiring an organ, like, Oh, I no longer need the pancreas to help process digestion and, produce enzymes and the pancreas just falls out of your body it's interesting it's almost like uh, an extension of you know what happens through like tadpoles and and frogs kind of thing right like where you have stages of life the caterpillar and the butterfly and that that sort of thing but only with specific components which is interesting i'm not i mean i'm i'm no evolutionary biologist or anything like that it's it just seems a little weird maybe that a, a species would be so would have fear so ingrained in them that when they hit a certain age, they just lose that completely and gain a weapon. Essentially, um, it just seems like a little odd, but I mean, it is sci-fi. So, no, you're right. It is. Oh, don't get me wrong. We've seen some weird evolution episodes in Star Trek, so maybe that's why I'm kind of I'm kind of giving it a pass. I will say, you know, whenever you talk evolution and you mention evolution, is one of those things that typically is like over millions of years, not like two thousand. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of people with a scientific brain are probably like, eh, it's a little, you know, it's a little unusual, but nothing too crazy. But it's, it is weird to know how such a drastic change it is. Cause it's almost, it's almost not even an evolution as much as they're becoming like an entirely different species. 
To an extent. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we get to learn a lot about the dynamic between the Kelpians and the Ba'ul. And we basically learn that the Kelpians were going to wipe the Ba'ul off the face of Kaminar. They were going to destroy them completely. Um, and, you know, that was when they, that was a couple thousand, I think it was 2,000 years or something like that, or a thousand years. It was, it was a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Right. And so, you know, obviously pre warp technology, probably pre a lot of technology. Um, but it did show that the Kelpians could be incredibly aggressive. And so there's, there's this interesting argument about whether or not what the Ba'ul did is um, best case scenario, right? Because obviously if they do nothing, they get wiped off the face of the planet. If they turn around and kill off all the Kelpians, then they're committing genocide. And so they tried to find what, you know, they call it the balance, but it's an interesting philosophical question, uh, ethical question, because I mean, they do, they do find a balance. The Ba'ul get to live and they get to be happy. The Kelpians get to live and they get to be happy too, to some extent, you know, there are, there's this argument, of course, that they're still essentially slaves, no no matter how pretty and nice the planet is. (laughs) Yeah. And, it doesn't, you know, the storyline doesn't resolve anything between the Ba'ul and the Kelpians at all. It's still, yeah, the Kelpians have evolved, and there's a little throwaway line in the episode where uh, the, uh, the the Ba'ul government has been decentralized and all that jazz. Like, the power's been decentralized. Um, you know, if history has taught us anything, sometimes that's decentralized power isn't always a good thing. You know, it's, you know, in, in American history, the Articles of Confederation, when you just had a bunch of individual states that pretended to be a government but weren't unified wasn't always a good thing mm-hmm. and it, so i understand what they're saying but again there's no like you said they're basically still slaves they still listen judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They have no technology. I mean, they live in essentially grass huts. Right. From the look of everything. it's And so the Ba'ul are weaker, but they still have technology and they still have space travel and they could... You know, what if they're like, all right, this has taught us that people are going to interfere on our planet, so we're just going to bomb them from orbit, and, oh, oh, well, I mean, it's, and, so, yeah, there's no real resolution, except for the Kelpians are now, I guess you could say, braver, and realize that the whole balance thing is a lie. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of implications, right? I mean, will we ever come back to Kaminar? Will we ever see what happens here? Because... Other than Saru's optimism, they're really – and I mean Sarana, his sister, of course, being down there. There isn't really anything else that would sh- say that things should be different this time around. You know, I don't see you know, necessarily why the Kelpians wouldn't act in a similar manner to the way they did before. They don't really have a reason not to. And if anything, they have a stronger reason now because if before they were killing off the Ba'ul because they could – now they might want to do it because they've been enslaved for a thousand years. Yeah, and that's the thing that the, the episode really doesn't even touch on is we get a lot of cool moments with Saru and Sarana and the interaction with the one Ba'ul, which again, you know, the imagery and the graphics of this show are going to continue to be phenomenal. Yeah. But the but there's still no, you understand what the, what the cause was and, you know, uh, Tilly and Arium used the sphere to <laughs> comb through thousands of years of history and they're able to show that, hey, look, the, the sphere scanned Kaminar a dozen times and you can see how many times the population shifted, which, again, is neat. But the one thing that I still... that still brings the question. So in the past, the Kelpians used to kill the Ba'ul. Everybody everybody understands that. The Ba'ul realized that, they can, that they're really good at technology, so they're going to use their technology to take over. And they keep the Kelpians alive for balance. But that's the thing, is there's no there's no reason why the Ba'ul kept the Kelpians alive. If there's nothing unless there's something in the genes that they need Kelpian DNA for, I don't know. But like you just said, if the Kelpians were hunting them for thousands of years and the Ba'ul got their revenge, they got like a really weird sort of revenge. 
Well, that's why I'm not sure it was revenge. Um, because in this episode, you know, we learned that the Ba'ul could, can destroy all of the Kelpians and they attempt to do so, right? So they don't, quote, need the Kelpians to survive. I wonder, and of course, this is complete speculation at this point, but I wonder if they weren't looking for revenge. They were just looking for a survival and they didn't want to commit genocide anymore than than you know you or i would want to so they didn't want to kill the kelpians they just wanted to survive the kelpians and they came up with what they believed was the best solution their balance which was to keep the peaceful kelpians alive and happy give them plenty of food you know that type of thing and when they become the violent kelpians to get rid of them um obviously there's a ton of moral and ethical issues there that make that not okay uh, but it's an interesting take because it's definitely a more gray conversation. It's not black and white. They didn't just say, we're going to murder all the Kelpians, right? You know, that's much easier to say they're evil. But in this case, they didn't do that. They kept the Kelpians alive and happy for the most part for a long time. I mean, most of those Kelpians appeared content and maybe that's a stretch. But no, you're right. And I know I'm the guy that on our own Star Trek podcast, I always reference in other stories. <laughs> uh, but there's a there's a, a species in Babylon 5 called the Hayek. And they evolved on their home planet. And they had a son, they had like a, a twin species called the Hayek Doe. And they used to live in peace and harmony and everything. And they used to like interbreed and inter intermarry and have kids. And then for some reason, like 2,000 years in the past or whatever, the Hayek just kind of lost their mind and said, wait, no, the Hayek Doe, are a, they're an inferior species. We don't need them. And they killed them all off. And it's like a huge stain on their history. They don't talk about it. They don't admit it. Well, it turns out that the Hayek Doe had like a genetic code that the Hayek needed and they could only get it through breeding. Mm. And when they killed off that species, they essentially killed themselves off. So every year they had less and less people. And so it was like, it was like symbiosis. I'm kind of hoping that somehow they reveal that something about the, like the, uh, the harmony of Baul and uh, Kelpians is somehow somehow they it turns into that they actually need each other. Mm -hmm. Whatever for whatever reason it is, maybe it's the Bowel are really good at technology, but holy cow, it turns out that the Kelpians create like a byproduct food thing that they offer as a sacrifice or something, and the Bowel just don't want to tell them that yeah, that's all we want, <laughs> but we need it, but we can't grow it, and you can or something neat like that where it's just some sort of symbiosis, almost like the trill. You know, they have the symbionts and the trill. You know, just that way the species, maybe they come together in the future and realize, oh, we do need each other. Let's be peaceful and let's be friends. Yeah. I mean, to your point of bringing in like outside sci-fi, I mean, this this episode, this concept does ring very similar to Logan's run. So, Oh, yeah. That's a good point. You know. I never did make sure we think about it like that. Uh, I love Logan's run. It's a an older 70s, early 70s uh, sci-fi film. It's one of my favorites. I made sure to watch it on my 30th birthday so i could go through carousel uh <laughs> make sure your hands make sure your hands not bl bl blinking red uh for those who don't know logan's run it, it's a um it's basically it's a future where everything kind of appears to be perfect everyone's very happy advanced technologies but on your 30th birthday you go through what's called carousel and you are going to renew to the next stage of life um and of course you know spoiler alert for a movie from the 70s, but uh, it turns out that that's not what happens. Uh, you get killed off, and what is implied is that you are reprocessed into food, very much like Soylent Green, um, and the main characters escape and find the outside world and, and all that stuff. And so what's interesting here, the parallels could be that the Kelpians are essentially those people in Logan's Run. They have – everything is provided for them. They don't really want or need – on on a whole on, on average of course you always have an individual like saru who looks to the stars and wants more but on the whole they are safe they are fed they are provided you know a wonderful place to live but there's that caveat of when they reach a certain age then that's it they're gone and they're killed off so saru breaks through and he sees the rest of the universe and what's out there and you know, the, the flip of that coin is you might, the Kelpians may now be free, but they're certainly not going to be cared for anymore by the Ba'ul. They're going to have to get everything on their own. They're going to have to get all their own resources, their own food, their own technologies, especially now that they know they're part of this massive world. That's on them now to, to care for themselves in a way they haven't had to for a long time. And while I think 
<laughs> I would imagine most people would argue that that's the better position to be in because you control your own destiny. Um, you know, it's an interesting question that maybe the Ba'ul thought they were doing the right thing by not killing off the Kelpians. Yeah, and that's the nice thing is they actually have a whole bunch of ways. And, you know, they may never even come back to this planet, to Kaminar, and they may never reference the Ba'ul again. I hope not, or I hope they do. I hope they don't just ignore it because there's a lot of story left here. And Saru's one of the main characters, so he's always going to be wor- worried now that he knows his sister's still alive. I mean, I mean, he always knew his sister, but you know what I mean? Now that he's like seen her and held her and been with her, uh, that's a huge change for him. And you can even see his physical reaction when she beams away. You can see his heartbreak. You can see it on his face, even through the prosthetics. His eyes narrowed, his face tightened. It was sad. It's just, it's like if Ray's getting on a plane for a month, you'd be sad. It's like when I leave my family, you get sad. You can see that in Saru's face. And they're still building these characters more and more. And again, I'm I'm already worried about next week's episode because of we'll talk about that in a minute. But you know the the trailer with Burnham going to Vulcan, and I'm like, no, you've spent like four episodes building up her humanity, and now she's going to go all back and be a Vulcan. I'm like, because she's such a good actress when she's being a human. <laughs> so I like I like the emotion. I like the emotion of Saru about his sister, and like you said, it's who knows what they're going to do with the Baul. Yeah, there's so we're just left with a lot of questions. You know, we um, we're left with knowing, I guess, that Saru has changed. He is a different person now, and he will have to deal with his aggression, which is probably something a lot of people can relate to. You know, um, I can have an aggressive streak for sure, and I I, um, I can definitely understand wrestling with that from time to time. So that's certainly a relatable feature for him. But I mean, I, I would be surprised if we ever see Kaminar again. Um, I will be pleasantly happy uh, if I'm if I'm wrong and we do get to go back and find out what happened to these people because I think it's a really interesting – it would be a really interesting study in the Star Trek universe for what would happen when you have intelligent sentient species that are that separated in their technologies. Well, it would be a good moral dilemma for Starfleet if you know they left the planet knowing what happened and what's going on and let's say they come back in five years and, oh, does yeah, the Kelpians killed off all the Ba'ul. Like, every single Ba'ul is now dead. And Starfleet has to grapple with the fact, like, oh, this is, this is a little bit of our fault, isn't it? I mean, to, to a good extent, right? Because obviously the, the Kelpians would not have been able to break free, so to speak, without that assistance. I think you're absolutely right. I think it, it creates a lot of issues because... If the Ba'ul or the Kelpians ever want to join the Federation, will the other be forced to as well, or they're both out? Or will the Ba'ul leave the planet? Will they leave Kaminar because now they can't control the Kelpians? Or, you know, there's just, there's so many questions that I just, I would love to know more about it. I really would. And maybe there'll be some books or something in, in beta canon to, to expand on that, but we'll have to see. It's like that one TNG episode where, what, like three quarters of the planet wanted to join the Federation and like the Southern Continent or whatever didn't. Right. And even Starfleet's grappling with the fact, like, we can't admit three quarters of the the planet when the other quarter is violently opposed to joining us. It's like, you guys have to get your stuff sorted out before before we come back and finish this evaluation. So maybe, who knows? Or Mm -hmm. who knows? It could be the complete opposite. Ten years from now, the Ba'ul want to join the Federation and the Kelpians don't. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um and, you know, it was interesting because, you know, they, they mentioned when they're jumping to warp to, to go to Kaminar that's outside of Federation space. And, of course, it makes sense because the Ba'ul are a warp-capable species that's not part of the Federation. So that, that makes sense. But it was kind of an interesting thought because in The Brightest Star, where Lieutenant Georgiou shows up to and meets Saru, you know, in my head, it was just somewhere in Federation space. So I appreciated that clarification, even though, you know, logically, if you put the pieces together that... That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and Discovery, even on regular warp drive, still got there in like two hours. But, you know, Discovery has been playing fast and loose with t- with the travel and distances for all both both seasons. So I'm not really too worried about that. The story has to continue. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we're supposed to assume that after Saints of Imperfection, they're not going to use the Spore Drive anymore, I'm assuming. Um, is the case because they want to play nice with the uh, with Maze species. That, that's in the mycelia network but um i mean maybe the, the argument could be made i guess that the red angel being allegedly sentient and intelligent and is designing all of this type of stuff for discovery to solve that that entity would not put something out of reach on purpose 
like 70,000 light years away in the middle of board space is a red, you know, the, oh, the final signal. <laughs> this is how this is how we introduced the Borg on Discovery is the Discovery has to go to the Delta Quadrant somehow. Oh, that would be that would definitely be interesting if if we got to see more of the Delta Quadrant in canon. Um the books obviously have have explored that a lot more Kirsten Byers books the quote Voyager relaunch novels um you know get to expand on that quite a bit but it would be interesting to see what the delta quadrant would have been like like you know 150 years before voyager because it was a less developed i guess uh quadrant when voyager was there so i would imagine it'd be even more so prior to that yeah delta quadrant had a lot of species just we didn't see a lot of like traditional empires mm-hmm. or like or space nation states like you see in the Alpha and Beta Quadrant. So, yeah, that'd be a fun story. And, you know, I'm trying to think of the rest of the episode. You know, I kind of like the interaction with Colburn and everything in sickbay when they're scanning him. And the doc, the chief medical officer is like, yeah, you've been through something that nobody else can understand. You know, being rebuilt and kind of, for lack of a better term, tortured for like six months in, in, the, in the mycelial network. And his interaction with statements. Because this episode, we didn't get a lot of statements. We didn't get a lot of Tilly. Uh, it was really Saru, Burnham, and Pike. Um, so the secondary stuff, we didn't really, we didn't really get a lot of interaction. Yeah, the the Colbert and Stamen stuff is very interesting. You know, we so Stamen uh, Colbert's entire body is brand new, right? He's missing a scar that he got at one point, and he is clearly messed up, right? He's got PTSD. There are issues that he is going to have to work through, and. I think they're building this up for statements not to give him the time that he really needs because there's that moment where Culver kind of shies away from statements touch and he's clearly uncomfortable. And I don't think, I don't think statements really got the signals. At least I don't think we were supposed to think he did. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming we're going to see that evolve into a more complex relationship where Hugh is not, who he was before necessarily. And that will be a struggle for their relationship for the good or for worse. Um, that'll be interesting to see play out. But uh, yeah, I mean, not a whole lot of other stuff happens. There's no section 31, which is kind of surprising um, that, you know, no one's keeping tabs on discovery during all of this when it kind of seemed like they were. Yeah. Cause even what's uh Tyler's wearing this, this discovery uniform again. Yeah, he's just back in the disco uniform uh, like Pike is. It's, it's interesting because, you know, clearly Shazad Latif was a fan favorite actor and character, Ash Tyler being the, the character uh, from season one. And I'm wondering if maybe they just found a place for him in season two as an excuse to bring him back. I don't know that that's true. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that because I, I do really like the actor. Shazad's great. Uh, but I'm very curious to see what they do with this with this story arc with this character lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Character as someone who went through what he went through. Well, it's kind of like Worf in the Star Trek TNG movies after after Generations. It's they always found some excuse for him to be on the ship when he's assigned to DS9. <laughs> it's like first contact because he's commanding, you know, the Defiant, right? That's So that's fine. But then like Insurrection, they're attending a wedding and they're still on the ship or whatever. Or or not, ne- not, not Insurrection, Nemesis. But he's at that conference in Insurrection. And it's like they just keep finding a reason for him to be there. And yeah, it's kind of like that with uh, with Tyler. Is they realized, oh, he was a fan favorite. People like him. He's good on screen. Uh, uh, he's Section Thirty One. He's the liaison to Discovery, and just put on the blue uniform. And 
and don't ask any questions. Yeah. But you, you can kind of tell he's still a little awkward. He's still a little unsure of himself. Uh, you can tell he's grappling with, you know, I think Culber and him are going to have a very weird interaction because that's not going to be easy for Culber when the man that killed him is still on this on this damn ship and apparently completely, you know, unpunished for lack of a better term. If you, if you think about it, despite obviously everything Tyler went through, he still killed Culber. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's a Sakata episode. Culber's going to see that and be like, he's just walking around. Like nothing happened, nobody cares. Maybe that's what sets Colbert off too. Because you're right, it's Stamets kind of kind of wants to pick up, you know, with his better half. And you know, after six months of hell, Colbert probably has no interest in a romantic or sexual relationship right now. He's probably like, just I don't even know who I am, and everything sucks. Just help me figure this out. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting concept, and I mean, we don't know that Colbert even knows how he died. It's, yeah, he may not know. I mean, I'm sure somebody will likely tell him. Yeah. Like, oh, what's it like being with Tyler, the guy that killed you? He's like, what? Tyler killed me? Because, um, I mean, it happens It happens so fast, you know, that and obviously we don't really know anybody who has survived an injury like that. Um, so I don't know that we have any idea what he would remember necessarily. Yeah, and even he's kind of saying he doesn't really remember anything right now. It's, he remembers being in the mycelial network, and that's pretty much it, it seems like. It's going to be a long road for him, and I, I hope that they give that story justice. Um, we've gotten a lot of, of action. We've been introduced to new characters, new species like the Ba'ul, and they're throwing Section 31 in and, and all of that. So I hope that they give, after all the work they did to bring Culber back, I hope that they do that storyline justice. Well, that's what you and I were talking about last week with the whole, you know, when you when you gloss over character deaths, it kind of impacts the story a little bit. And maybe this comes into, you know, five episodes from now or the, before the season finale, he tells Stamets, I can't be on this ship. I can't be in Starfleet. I want to go home. You know, I want to go home to where I was raised. I want to I want to start over mm-hmm. and it'll force a decision with Stamets where Stamets either has to go or stay on the ship. So... That would kind of be a good resolution. You give a few episodes of struggle and growth before he's like, I can't do this. I need to leave. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do kind of want to clear up at least, um, I don't want to speak for you, Greg, but some of what we were talking about last week when we were discussing the deaths and everything, um, I think a, a couple of people may have misunderstood what we meant by lack of consequences for some of these characters. Um so we definitely didn't mean there are no consequences in, in Discovery. I mean, clearly there, there are tons of consequences in, in Discovery. Um, you know, lots and lots of people have died who are not main characters. Lots of things have happened permanently to characters on the ship. Um, you know, there's, there's legitimate consequences. What really I met meant was, you know, whereas like Lieutenant Detmer has, you know, she has new implants on her face after being injured in the beginning of the show. Um, that's, that's kind of all we get, you know, from a consequence from her for Saru, um, you know, his death was played very heavily as this very emotional, um, episode, incredibly intense scene. You know, we talked about how great that was last week, um, only for it to basically kind of magically go away. And, you know, they've, they've gone through and they've explained all of that, but, you know, um, I I think the big issue was, the, the two back-to-back, having Saru and Kolber both survive these impossible situations and back-to-back episodes um, kind of just seemed a little... It cheapened it a little bit for me. Well, yeah, because, for example, in this episode, when Saru is being ca- like caught by the Ba'ul and they're using that little spimming Destiny probe thing on him, and I had no fear. I knew, like, well, he's already gone through hell these past three episodes. He's not going to die now. <laughs> I mean, so... That's what I mean is there's, I can already anticipate, you know, future scenarios where they're in danger and it, it does lessen it a little bit. It's and again, not to, not everybody has to die. Detmer got those implants. Nog lost a leg. I mean, Worf lost a spine and had to get a new spine. I mean, Starfleet officers have had injuries that have had significant consequences. Picard spent weeks recovering from being a Borg and... It messed him up mentally, and he's still dealing with it, you know, 10 years after the incident. He's still not 100%. And consequences are important, and 
you know, we don't know what they're going to do with Colburn. I'm with you. It's not that it's not that I'm saying they didn't have any consequences, but did, did you have any fear that in this, this episode that Saru was going to be harmed at all? I didn't. I really didn't, especially not with the way the episode went. You know, at this point, I feel like if he's going to die, it's going to be some very big sacrificial moment if it happens at all. And there wasn't an opportunity for that in this episode. Um, I just, no, I, I didn't see it happening. And truth is, nobody even gets hurt, really, in this episode. Everybody's fine. Everybody's out either the same condition they were when they went in or maybe even a little bit better in some cases, um, which is just, you know it's fine. Like we don't have to have, obviously I don't want to have deaths every week. That would be incredibly depressing and we don't need, you know, game of Thrones over here, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, but at, at the same token, you're right. Like I, I just, I wasn't concerned that he wasn't going to make it out. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Maybe a bunch of faceless Kelpians were going to get killed by the Baul, right? Um, which is something, you know, movies do a lot. There's lots of faceless groups, that get torn torn down and it's easier to handle that because we haven't seen their faces and we don't know their names but um yeah i never had concerns for saru yeah me either and again it's just because i as a, as a fan you know i know they're not going to do three episodes in a row where they're going to dangle death on us no and put him in debt and they're just it, it's just and that's a, that's just one problem when you threaten a character with death and then you take it away it kind of gives them that feeling of invincibility where i think yeah, and that characters don't always have to die, but, you know, it's the threat, it's the emotion, it's the story, it's, you know, it's you not knowing that, Cap that Patrick Stewart's coming back after Best of the Both Worlds Part 1, because there's all that discussion of, oh, there's a contract dispute, he may not be back for Season 4, and everybody's like, oh my god, he might die. Like, yeah, Picard might die in this episode, and people were, I remember even being a kid, I'm like, what the hell, he can't, what do you mean? And it's, you know... It, it's like Benjamin Sisko, probably the most important thing in his life, arguably, was the lo losing his wife. Mm -hmm. And it drove everything. It radically altered his decision-making on willing to become the emissary, on seeing her. And not even, you know, the, 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 the wormhole aliens are like, you have to move on. You have to get past this because we've seen what you're capable of doing. And if you stay in the past, and that's when he realized and... Even when he tries, you know, Jake tries to trick Mirror Jennifer to fall in love with him and all that jazz. And it became a, horde, a huge part of the story because it helped make him who he was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could you could do something like that without killing anybody if it's just, you know, I don't know, like maybe, I don't know. But like you said, Detmer's injury is still, they never even talked about that. It just, it happened and... Here it is. You think somebody could have been like, oh, you were at the Battle of the Binary Stars, and is that where you got your wound? Oh, yeah, this is this is my implant that helps me with my visual acuity or something. Boom. I would like to know. I mean, Detmer, she seems like a really cool character, and um, I just want to know more about her. Like, is that a completely artificial eye? Is it partly artificial, right? Like, I mean, what is, is it kind of like what Jordy gets in, in First Contact? You know, I would like to know. And, you know, she's got the the pieces on the side of her face. And maybe that's what, you know, allows that to work instead of using a visor. I mean, we don't know, right? Um, I'd like to, to know more about that. You know, we've got so many of these side characters, too, that we still don't know much about. Like Arium, for example. Um, she has a very brief role in this episode. She's helping, well, helping Tilly. She's really the one doing it, coming through all that data. You know, and, uh, you know, she's... There's, there's kind of some arguments in the community about what she is. Is she an android? And how can she be an android if Data was the first android in Starfleet and, and that kind of thing? But on the flip side of that, I mean, Data was a positronic android. Maybe that was the distinction. She's not positronic. Um, she may not be really human. Uh, she may not be android. She may be more human and humanoid. You know, maybe she is a cyborg-like species. You know, that um, they evolve along with their technology, something akin to, um, you know, like the Borg, but not uh, malicious. <laughs> yeah, they're not they're not driven assimilators. They're just synthetic cyborg, you know, art of firm. Yeah, they're just cyborgs, essentially. I mean, it's well, like the binars well, and, in TNG, right? Yeah. You know, they, they, they pair up, of course, which is different, but they're very deeply connected in the technology on their planet, right? Uh, maybe this is something similar. They grow up with technology to become more sophisticated beings. 
Um, I want to know more. I want to know where she's from. What planet is she from? How did she come to be in Starfleet? Um, you have lots. Well, and I, I, yeah, and I mean, I know there's somebody out there probably like, ah, oh, why do we need to know about Detmer or Arium or all that? I'm like, look, there's precedents all throughout Star Trek where, I mean, hell, Seven of Nine's implants like come to live in an episode, and her implants are part of stories. And there's episodes about Jordy's visor, mm-hmm. and Starfleet has talked. To, they've done this dozens of times before because they know. The fans are fascinated by it. You know, why Why did Seven to Nine have to keep some of those implants? And they explain it. You know, how can she use it? Oh, it helps her do all this stuff. I mean, it's... Why, do, why does she have the stuff on her hand? Oh, this is why. It's neat. People like to know that kind of stuff. It's Star Trek. It's, you know, it's it's almost literal science fiction where people want to know the background. Well, you, you know, Discovery has a wide group of crew members, unlike most of the other shows. And... I want to learn about who these people are. You know, you have Linus, for example, who's Saurian, and he's the first Saurian we've seen since, you know, a a single shot in the motion picture. I want to know about his species, right? Tell me more about them. Um, There's those, those other aliens that I don't even think we know what they're, what they're called yet, but they're very alien. They kind of have the, the head that becomes very wide at the top. And there was a couple of them on the bridge. Like, tell me about those people. Um, if you're going to show me new stuff, stuff that isn't in older Trek, you know, there's, they're not Ferengi and Romulan and Klingon, then you tell me about them because I know about the other species because I was told I was shown they had these great stories. Give me, give me stories about these crew members. That's what I want to see. I mean, we're going to get Spock and you know, I'm optimistic that it's a good story, but I would just love to learn more about the crew members that we have. Yeah, I mean, because you have them there, and you've spent a lot of time and effort on the makeup and the the prosthetics and the look and the feel of the show and the characters. This is what sci-fi fans want. They want to know more about aliens. It, yeah, we've had we've had fifty years of humans and Vulcans and Klingons. It's it's okay if you want to do an Arium episode where uh, there's a power outage on the ship and she's the commanding officer on the bridge at the time. Just like you know, when they hit a warp filament or something, and Doctor Crusher's left in command. I'm like, that's fine. You got to learn more about Dr. Crusher and everybody liked Dr. Crusher and people are interested. It might be why I enjoyed this episode as much as I did is because it focuses on Saru, who we were learning more about. Now we know so much more about who the Kelpians are, what they are, where they came from. And this could not have been a cheap episode between all of the Kelpians in prosthetic work um a lot of prosthetic work you had the baul you had their ships you know this was not a a bottle episode in any sense of the term so i appreciate that they decided to kind of go all in on that and it it made for a good episode it really did well and okay we got to talk about the baul ships for a second i got i can't i can't not bring this up <laughs> okay so i know i'm not the only star trek fan out there that realizes this that's the preserver from the original series. It's that almost has the exact same look as the preserver obelisk from the original series is the Baul ships upside down. Now that's and very interesting. I, I don't know if that's because there's a fan of the show who just liked the image. And I know it's not perfect the one-to-one, but it is so darn close. The Preserver Obelisk and the Bowel Ships are so freaking similar, just inverted, that I... But there's no way the Bowel could be the Preservers. The Preservers wanted to, you know... I don't know. The Preservers wanted to save life, and the, the Bowel kind of wanted to save the Kelpians. I don't know. But... <laughs> so, we'll see. But they are very, very similar. And the moment I saw it, I was like, wait. Like, the Preservers... Baul, what's going on? Um, again, it could be coincidence. Starfleet or Starfleet, Star Trek has reused props and images before. You know the uh, the the Edo God in Next Generation was also uh, in the an episode like season six, where it was the command base for another alien life form. So they've reused images and just oh, nobody's gonna notice. I imagine it was something like that because I just looked it up because I was curious. And you're right. There are tons of similarities in those designs. But part of me thinks it's just because it's a relatively simplistic shape design. And maybe that's that's just the idea, right? Um, I don't know. It's an interesting question, though. It would be interesting to, to know if there's any connections between those two. Did you ever play a game when we were kids called Ultima 9 Ascension? It was a pretty awful game. 
No, can't say uh, I did. <laughs> you didn't miss anything. It, it was arguably one of the worst worst games I've ever played. But the villages or whatever, they had these scattered evil columns around the planet that were like used to control people. And so I'm watching this. I'm like, wait a second. There's an obelisk around each village trying to control people. I'm like, is this from Ultima 9? And I'm probably the only person, in, I'm probably the only Star Trek fan making that connection. Uh, but thankfully, this episode is a lot better than start than than Ultimate Nine because that game sucked. That's fair. Um, of course, there's the one trope in Star Trek continues where the main ship is the only ship in the area. You know, when the Ba'ul kind of become confrontational, and you see that there's like six different ships. They've got weapons and and all that kind of stuff, and it's still it's just the Discovery one one little uh, crossfire class ship. You know. There's nobody. There's never anybody else. And I get that that was a trope early on because of, for money-saving techniques. Models were very expensive. Film was very expensive. Um, but nowadays, you know, you can throw a couple more ships in there. It's okay. Make it look... Yeah, you know. I mean, a pike calls for help and two ships respond. And maybe that's what helps the bow will go, all right, wait a second. We don't want to pick a fight with the Federation. At the same time, we're trying to fight the Kelpians. Right. Give give a little character to them versus, you know, here's 10 obelisks flying at you and you have no idea what their capabilities are. Uh, Pike didn't seem too concerned. No. And, oh, and really quick, back to a, a different topic about the death thing. It's like Captain Pike. I love the actor. Anson Mount is doing a phenomenal job as Captain Pike. I wish they would let him be a little bit more commanding, but that's just me. But there's also no threat of him being hurt or facing any danger. Mm-hmm. Because they've been very, they've been very open in trying to say that this is normal, this is canon, et cetera, et cetera, and we already know Pike's canon history, so there's no danger. They're not gonna, he's not gonna have some crippling injury now just to get fixed, just to end up in a wheelchair. I mean, that's cruel if you're gonna do, if you're gonna do that as a storyline. Yeah. Um. So again, but you know, whereas with Lorca, who was kind of in danger, like every three minutes, he was in danger. We know why. We know why he was always in danger. <laughs> but it was kind of, it's still kind of neat. Um. But then, you know, it remains to be seen. It was a, what would the Twitter poll say on this episode, now that I'm thinking about it? That's a good one. Um, so on this one, this was uh, really kind of strong in one direction. 51% gave it an A. 41% gave it a B. And then uh, 5 with a C and just 2% with a D or lower. So, you know, 92%. Um, math doesn't quite add up exactly there must be a rounding issue on twitter but 92 percent of uh those we polled gave it a b or higher saying that this was this was a good episode what would you give it and i would agree with that yeah i mean i would actually give it a, an a just a flat a because i liked i like the building up of uh the kelpians i like the introduction of the baul i thought that was well done i you know me i, I like a mystery i like mystery species i like the whole arc of you know i thought they're I thought the voice was cool. I thought their interaction with the Kelpians was cool. Uh, I mean, with Saru when they're talking and she's coming out, or he, I don't know, the Ba'ul is just coming out of the oil. I thought that was neat. I thought it looked really cool. I thought it looked intimidating. Uh, I thought Saru's reaction was pretty legit because he was still, you know, frustrated and a bit scared, but also wanting to stand up for himself. So it it was a good, it was a very good episode. Probably actually, I think it's my favorite of the season so far. Um, I, I gave it an A too. I really liked it a lot. It was really good. Um, very strong. Doug Jones is just a phenomenal actor and his ability to act through those prosthetics are, are really impressive. And Hannah Spear, who plays Serana, his sister, also did a phenomenal job. Uh, I have to kind of look into her career. I don't know if she's done this type of work prior to Discovery. Uh, she did play Serana in the Brightest Star Short Trek episode. Um, but it's not easy work to uh, to act emotions through that type of prosthetics. Um, one thing that I forgot to, to point out, so I was watching this episode with Ray, who, uh, for those who listen to the show, she joined me to do a lot of the movie reviews. And um, we were watching it, and right when they cut to the ship, where um, in the Ba'ul ship, and they show the, the pool, right? There's this instant moment where Ray and I are both like, oh my god, are the Ba'ul actually Kelpians? you know, like they evolve into the Ba'ul, right? After the Vahara and they become kind of like a separate species. It was, and we're like, oh my God, is that really what it is? And then obviously that's not the case, but 
<laughs> that would have been kind of that. That would have been neat. Yeah, <laughs> that would have at least been uh, very unique. I don't know if it would have been good, but it would have been unique. I can't think of another example where something like that has happened, but that would have been very interesting to see, um, like a totally evolved thing. But then, of course, you run the risk of do you then change how Saru looks, and he's your regular character. So how are you going to do that? <laughs> kind of like the whole sona and baku right from insurrection which i don't like referencing insurrection but it's kind of like oh yeah there's you know there's 100 100 baku on board and one klingon or whatever and you're like yes yeah, more kill them all um it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of like the two different species what you think is too different but you're like oh no they're the exact same and it, you know we'll see i mean they'll, maybe they'll be back but like you i, I kind of agree with you i don't think there's just not enough time with the the pace of the show right now to spend another episode on Kaminar yeah to to come back and deal with this when you got to deal with Spock and you got to deal with the Red Angel and you got to show the Klingons and you know what's going on with the other species because at some point you're going to they're going to start introducing more uh, how's the how's the Red Angel going to play out is it a is it a what's an Iconian or is it a whatever or is it Please don't be like a future human, because we've already done that. It's, ca- it's Captain uh, Jonathan Archer, of course. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> on that note. Uh, wait, no, I do have a question. I, think... I do have a question. Legitimately, how did you feel about uh, Saru's new spikes that come out where his fear ganglia used to be? How did you feel about that? In practice, I, or in theory, I like it. I think the delivery was a little goofy. <laughs> Just because, maybe just because of the image and he was pinned against the wall, and maybe it was just because you didn't really get a good thing. I mean, it is kind of, it's, it's, it's very effective to show the transition from prey to predator. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of neat where, you know, there's some species on Earth like that. Like you could say, wolf, like, like true wild wolves and true wild cats for their first three to six months are somewhat prey animals. And when they turn into predators, they get bigger, their teeth get sharper, their claws get bigger, and they get smarter, better, faster. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the same thing here. Is Saru evolved, maybe not as a predator, but to at least have the ability to defend themselves. I can, I can say that would be one hell of a surprise as people being able to shoot spikes at you without you expecting it. That would be one hell of a, of a weapon. Yeah, yeah. That's a good, that's a good explanation. I, I guess I'm with, I'm with you there. It uh, seemed like, a little silly at the time. Well, no, like I said, I do think it looked kind of silly. Yeah. I And I get what they're doing, but I almost wish they would have just focused on the physicality and, like, something about the muscle fibers getting stronger or something like that. They, the Kelpians just physically become not bigger, but more able to use their muscle mass to their advantage or something like that. Like how he was able to break free of those restraints. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, that, I think, would have been a, a little bit neater to have... Uh, Saru all of a sudden is like the strongest creature on the ship or something. Well, he might be. I mean, you know, like you said, uh, when they're on Pavo in season one, I mean, he shows his strength. And at the moment, we don't really have anybody else on board that we know can match that strength. Uh, Arium might be able to since she's uh, at least partly um, robotic. Um, we don't really know much about the Saurians or the some of the other newer alien species. So he might be the strongest person on the ship. <laughs> but overall good episode i mean it was some I, I like that we got a better image of the red angel because after four episodes of kind of like looking at it like there's like it's covered in vaseline and you can't see anything mm-hmm. i'm like let's just start start really teasing people and now it's like is it mechanical what is it it's obviously it's got an interest in the federation for whatever reason I and mean, maybe it's just maybe it's another species out there that's just like Eh, you know, we we also believe in balance, and we don't want the Kelpians to do this, and we want the Federation to prosper because then two hundred years you stopped the Dominion, and the Dominion killed my homeworld. Problems like boom. I don't think that's I, that's not the case. I know it's not the case, but it it, it could be something like that. I don't know. Yeah, that's time fair. travel's always time travel's always risky with me. It is time travel can be fun. It can be weird. It can screw things up. I tend to be a sucker for it, but it still has to be done well. So. Anything else on the sound of th- of thunder? 
No, I think we're good. I think I called it the sounds of thunder at the beginning of the episode, but it's just the one sound. So. Just the one, just the one sound. <laughs> you're, you're thinking days of thunder starring Tom Cruise. I, well, I think I was. It. I think I was. Now we just need now we just need Saru in a race car next time. I'd watch it. <laughs> I, would, I would. I would watch the hell out of that. <laughs> I wonder what the you know how in Voyager they had like the racing uniforms uh, for the Delta Flyer. Um, and that, there's I wonder what the, I wonder what that would look like in disco era. <laughs> Can someone make that? <laughs> All right, CBS, if you call us, Derek and I will help you in season three on creating a uh, Delta Flyer equivalent for the Discovery <laughs> with uh, with racing uniforms and headbands. I'm good with it. Um, but yeah, so I guess uh, next week is Light and Shadows, episode seven, which will mark the halfway point in season two. And they go back to Vulcan. So we will see how I feel about this. Well, we've been the Vulcan a few times. Enterprise was there a lot, and we were there in a couple of the movies and, and things like that. Of course, in the older show, um, I, I mean, we did just got get to explore another planet we did not know, Kaminar. So maybe it's good to kind of get back to familiar territory. I assume we will finally meet Spock in this next episode. <laughs> He's been hiding out on Vulcan the entire time. It's like the one spot, star, the one place Starfleet never looked was his own home planet. Well, that would be the logic, right? He's going to say, well, you know, it's the one place they would never look. <laughs> He's literally just like in his own bedroom. Like, nobody, nobody, like Amanda's like, I don't even, how, how long have you been here? And he's like, I don't know, like three months. He just never looked in my bedroom. I, I, I'm going to, okay, here's my guess. I'm going to guess he's deep in the caves where they do the colonar. And that's why nobody could find him because there's no technology in there. You can't communicate in or out and nobody would have... Um, informed anybody that he was there because it's a private, you know, almost religious experience. Is he eating Federation ration bars again? Might be. (laughs) MREs, man, they'll kill you. (laughs) No, but I think that's it. I think, uh, I think it's a good spot for us to stop. So by the way, CBS, if you are interested in us to help you out with season three, you can find us on Twitter at heroes podcast network. Uh, you can also just Google us, Heroes Podcast Network, Red Shirts and Runabouts. We're actually showing up on a lot of, a lot of the search results. The podcast itself is on Apple, Google Play. Uh, what are the other ones there? Because there's even more now. There are more. So this is this is cool. Some some announcements. We are now on Spreaker and Spotify. We are on Spotify, which I, most people have access to and things like that. So you can subscribe there. Our whole catalog is on Spotify, which is really cool. Uh, and you can actually meet us in person during a live episode of the show at Planet Comic Con, the last weekend in March in Kansas City, Missouri. Our panel is on Saturday at uh, 12 p.m. We'll be there for 50 minutes doing a live episode, building the ultimate Star Trek crew. So you can come talk to us. We can hang out afterwards and whatever. And um, it's a good, good social experience. So please join us for that. Yeah, come by Planet Comic Con. You can talk to us, listen to the listen to our live recording. And Planet Comic Con is just an awesome convention, anyways. It's bigger every year. I think it's now one of the largest, if not the largest, convention in the Midwest. Uh, it depends if you count running... Chicago or not. C two E two still still yeah. bigger. But uh, this is the twentieth anniversary though of Planet Comic Con, so this is a very big year for us. That's right, and we got a whole bunch of Harry pa- Harry Potter cast and crew coming. We do, yeah. Yeah, it's it's good stuff, and a couple couple fan favorites for me are going to be there. John Wesley Ship, who played the original Flash and plays John uh, John, uh, plays uh, Jay Garrick on the new CW show, will be there. I'm excited about that. Fun times. I mean, I'll be there. So yeah, <laughs> everybody, come find us at Planet Comic Con, uh, or like I said, you can track us down on any of the any of the appropriate podcast networks, and just Google Heroes Podcast uh, Network or Red Shirts and Runabouts, and you'll be able to find all of our episodes and download us on your favorite app. And uh, But otherwise, we will be back next week for episode 62 to discuss Star Trek news, Discovery, and anything in between. Derek, how can people find you, my friend? Well, I am the Star Trek Dude on Twitter and Facebook, so please come talk Trek and games and other things with me there. And I am the underscore Bittersteel on Twitter. We've actually been having a little bit more fan interaction lately, which is always nice. Yes. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to give us feedback and commentary and what you like, what you didn't like. Uh, just be respectful. Absolutely. We all have opinions. <laughs> I promise I do like Star Trek. I know I rag on it. But like I say, you, you can love something and still criticize it. That's right. That's right. 
just like Game of Thrones. I love Game of Thrones, but sometimes it's a little weak. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Derek. Well, I look forward to next week on episode 62. See you next time. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network and is hosted by Gregory Bosco and me, Derek Mayer. The music is by Flying Killer Robots. Please follow us at Red Shirts Pod on Twitter or at Heroes Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, or HeroesPodcast.com. You can subscribe to our show on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spreaker, and pretty much any other podcast app. If you enjoy the show, please support us. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash heroes podcasts, and we also have a coffee, ko-fi.com slash heroes podcasts. We'll catch you next time. Live long and prosper. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.